This podcast is brought to you by MedCloud. Get connected, cyber safe. Hello again, and thank you for joining me for another episode of the Vanguard podcast. And my guest today is Robert Bohr, who is CEO of Keepable, which is an award-winning GDPR SaaS solution, which shows users exactly where they are on GDPR, instantly creating the KPIs and reports they need and optimizing ongoing compliance. Prior to today, Rob is a graduate of Oxford University with a master's in engineering, economics, and management, and then became a lawyer specializing in intellectual property and technology law in the UK, Hong Kong, and Australia before becoming general counsel for VC-backed SaaS companies. He was also twice shortlisted for in-house lawyer of the year in the Law Society Excellence Awards. Rob also hosts a video podcast series called Privacy Kitchen, which are free to view videos helping on all things privacy for those dealing with GDPR for their organizations, filled with practical operational tips. Rob, welcome to the Vanguard podcast and thanks for joining me this morning. Thanks very much, Scott. It's always a pleasure. I'm very excited to be on the podcast. Thanks for having me. It's my pleasure indeed. I always wanted to get you on here and I know we've had to get the diaries lined up because GDPR is such an important element to business today, especially here in Europe. But before we get into the minefield that is GDPR, I would love for you to give us an overview of your career to date, starting from graduation in engineering, then obtaining a law degree, practicing in various countries before landing to where you are today as CEO of your own business capable. Absolutely, absolutely. So from the outside, it can look a bit like Brownian motion, but there there has been a uh, guiding path to it. So yes, so I I did a master's in engineering, economics and management at uh, Oxford. And that was a course that was created because they felt there were too many accountants running engineering businesses. So they created a course for engineers to get business now. And actually, all of us went into things like consulting and banking. And I'm the only one who went into law off it. But I'd always wanted my own business. I'm from the West Midlands, uh, the black country, the home of the Industrial Revolution. Half of my family is very entrepreneurial. They're half very sort of uh, medics and stuff. And I hate the sight of blood. So I'm sort of uh, on the entrepreneurial side. And I, I did that engineering, economics, and management degree because I felt that it really equipped me to know more about running my own business. And then I was looking at sort of consultancy and banking and I, and I was looking at, well, actually the meaning in my life, I want to be creating this business. So I thought, oddly, I'm probably the only person who went into law in this way. I thought law will add the uh, legal knowledge for, for running a business to it. And actually, I quite enjoyed the idea of being the legal advisor in corporates, being involved in, in corporate work and uh, becoming a partner in a law firm, running your own business as a partner. They were all sort of... Uh, very true partnerships in those days, much smaller. This was in the mid-90s. So I did law for that reason. I then sort of, okay, city law wasn't really for me in terms of I didn't want to stay in until partner level because it wasn't the sort of career that would really give me meaning. I know a lot of my friends are still in it. They, they enjoy it to varying degrees and absolutely nothing against it. But for me, I wanted to follow the entrepreneurial path. So the Hong Kong bit you mentioned, I was sitting there after about, I'd done my training for two years and, and two years post at a great law firm called Ashurst, which is one of the great ones in, in London here. I wanted to get more entrepreneurial, get some cash in the bank to, to as a bit of a war chest. And I actually looked on my desk, there was a Law Society Gazette. 
and the back cover had a junk in Hong Kong Harbor. And I thought, you know what? I've never been there. It's 10% tax. I can build a war chest. It will make me more commercial. It's like the army, go in a boy, come out a man. I thought, I'm going to go and do that. <laughs> so that was about the basis of it. So I got interviewed before handover in 97, went out just after, which was really interesting. Some fantastic times in, in Hong Kong. And then I went down to Oz. The pollution drove me out of Hong Kong, went to lovely Melbourne, which we've talked about a lot. And I was down in Melbourne at Minter Ellison, another fantastic firm. And then I, I couldn't get rid of a startup idea I'd had while I was in Hong Kong. And so I used that war chest I'd built in Hong Kong. I started, actually, it was a privacy startup in 2001. And I got my entrepreneur visa for Oz the day the dot-com bubble burst in 2001. So if there's oh, any no. listeners who were around at that time, it was a really interesting experience. So I went forward with it. I got an offer of funding from an Aussie government-backed incubator. But um, in the end, I decided to wrap it up with the environment. And also, I decided I wasn't the right person to push that one forward. It was more marketing in the end. So I came back to London, basically used law to get into startups. So I was general counsel at companies that they didn't need a full-time lawyer at all. So the idea there was skill up on SaaS, skill up on... So I was doing ops, I was doing sales, cold calls. I was standing outside waiting to do a demo, downloading the latest version of the app that fixed a bug before going in and all this sort of stuff. So I've been there, done that on startup growth and SaaS growth. So I was general counsel for the VC-backed startups for 13 years. And as the companies grew, I did, you know, obviously more and more law was in and strategic partnerships. And then we listed one and then I was the second one uh, pivoted and spun out the pivoted bit and listed that just after I left. So probably raised about 60 million over different times in that startup career, all in different up, downs and sideways. And I always was like a deputy CEO in these companies that I I was a very, law gets you into all aspects of the business. And so you need good relationships with everyone in the business. And with that commercial nous that I had, um, I very rapidly became a very trusted senior member of the team. People would come to me, I was, I was like I say, so almost like a deputy CEO with a good strategic view. And I thought, you know, I'm adding all this value to companies. I want to have another go at my own business. And so I left after a great Series C funding, very in, innovative funding, and I left to um, start up Keepable. And so that was my route to starting Keepable. Wow. Like all conversations I have, it's interesting. You mentioned two things that I, I, I want to go off on a little bit of a tangent with. Mm. One is... Every business leader or entrepreneur I speak to always reference an entrepreneurial spirit within their family. Okay, interesting. Whether it's their parents, their grandparents, their aunties and uncles yeah. um, or whatever, and, and, and you did the same. You said that there was that entrepreneurial spirit within your household as well. So that's quite interesting mm. to, to associate that with virtually 90% of the people I speak to. Really interesting. Secondly, and I had this conversation with my 14-year-old son this week or last week, and it was about your own adventure. And you mentioned that seeing on the back of a, a, a law magazine, a junk in Hong Kong Harbor, and then, yeah, there was reasons going out there for money and, and experience. And speaking to Andrew this week, he said, I want to finish university or I want to finish school and do maybe university in Australia or I want to travel. Do you think that sense of adventure or that adventure that you had going to Hong Kong and then Australia set you up for where you are now? And yes. how much of that adventure and that, I don't know, flying by the seat of your pants, do you think has influenced your career to date? Wow, that's a, that's a great question. First of all, brilliant to hear that from Matt. So I had a realization when I was a teenager that it, one of the reasons I didn't go into to banking or consulting was it, money's not the driver for me. It's like, I don't want to be lying on my deathbed with, you know, multiple whatever millions stashed under the mattress and I haven't actually spent time with family and friends or I haven't had experiences in life. And so the Epicurean attitude to life, 
life's about experience. And the more experiences you have, the richer the life you have. And I thought definitely lying on your deathbed, you want to think, I've made the most of my time here. I've experienced things. I've had meaning in my life. I've done meaningful things to help other people. That's really the important thing rather than how much money you've got under the mattress. So that's always been sort of at the back of my mind in that. And then I think if you go traveling, I'm a massive fan of travel, but not not just a sort of a you know a week here or two weeks there. A lot of modern language degrees they go away for a year and they have to sort of you know they work in a bar or something or as a waiter and they come back and they've got better language skills. But they've also stood on their own two feet. And during my degree, we did a six month work placement, a two month one and a six month one. So the six months one I did, it was all about staff assessment. So it was all about psychology about the staff assessment program. This construction company wanted to redo their staff assessment program. And I had to go around the country visiting as a 20-year-old all these building sites and talking to the construction guys at different levels about how they found their staff assessment, what they didn't like about it. You've got to be able to talk to lots of different people. You know, as a 20-year-old, it's quite a sort of thing to be thrown into and there's a lot of strong characters there. And so that type of thing is the same thing as going traveling where you're looking after yourself, you turn up, you go, this is me. There's no support chain around you. You're on your own. And getting over that fear factor and being able to do it. So the Hong Kong bit, I had a bit of um, nerves beforehand where I was thinking, can I do this? Am I capable enough to do this? And I said that to one of my friends and they said, look, you're one of the most capable people I know. I was like, oh, wow, that's really fantastic. So I didn't realize that was great feedback. And then I thought, well, actually, loads of people do it and they succeed at it. So am I less capable than any of those people? No, obviously not. So I'm going to go and do it. And then I went to do it and rapidly you get into it and you go, okay, I've done that. And once you achieve something, it empowers you to go and, and achieve more. And so definitely that Hong Kong experience was part of it. But I think, as I say, from that sort of stuff from school, stuff from uni, stuff all the way through and, and continuing now, I think every time you push yourself and expand your envelope, it's like a continual thing. It's an ever expanding thing. And if you don't push yourself and go for those things, you can sometimes just never really expand your envelope. And I think that's the separating thing at the end of the day. So I, pre I applaud Andrew's, uh, Andrew's design. I totally, I'd love my kids to go off for six months traveling and sort of not hear from them for you know, apart from an I'm okay dad type text now. <laughs> okay, you know. of course, of course. I agree. And as a matter of fact, a lot of people have said to me, what are you doing living here? And why do you, why don't you live in Australia? And it's life experiences, like you said, mm. you know, um, and, and I've been very lucky that I've given my wife the opportunity to live in Australia, but also my children have lived in Australia or been to Australia or can live in Australia whenever they yes. want. And whenever they mention it, I say, go, yeah. just go, you know, and, and, and looking back from my experience, I remember my mum and dad knowing that I was coming halfway around the world, my mum was, she was a little bit hesitant, but my dad's going, yeah, do it. Yeah. Just absolutely do it. And then after six months, knowing that uh, the experiences I've had and the travel I've done and life lessons that I've learned, and to me, it's all about life lessons. Yes. I agree with you. I think it's the best thing you can do. And now with communications and technology, there shouldn't be anything holding people back now. Absolutely. It builds resilience, but also like it helps you make decisions. So when I was in Melbourne, like one of my friends was, he was a banker and he was going to live in New York. And he was like, one day when, do you know what? I felt like complaining today. I said, why is that? He goes, well, I was on the tram from St. Kilda into the city and I couldn't get a seat. And I was like, mate, you're going to New York. Have you seen the subway? Do you know what's <laughs> going to happen? And, I, and a lot of the Melburnians were going, who hadn't left Oz, were going, you know, oh, you know, we really want to go and traveling and live in different places because, you know, Melbourne's this or Melbourne's that. And you're like, go travel traveling for sure, but you will then realize just what an absolute gem Melbourne is. And I think when you go traveling, it helps you understand other cultures. It helps you address your biases that you've got in yourself as well. So it opens your eyes to things. And yeah, absolutely. No, I agree with that. 
Just take it a little bit further when you arrived in Melbourne and the reason that you changed direction in your career, you pivoted in your career. And, and yeah. I, I guess you got to a fork in the road and thought, I could do this and take that entrepreneurial spirit, or do I stay in law? How difficult was that decision? Speaking to you now, it's just not a financial decision. It was a it was a lifestyle decision or whatever. But yeah. how difficult was that decision to take and why did you do it? As I mentioned, all the way through, I've always wanted to have my own business. I had a go when I was, so when I was in Melbourne, I was 30, basically. I'd always wanted to do my own business. The four or so years in a London city firm, great firm that it is, I was like, yeah, this is, you know, I'm a slightly square peg in a round hole here. I could do this, but would I be happy doing this? Would I feel like my life has meaning doing this? And I didn't feel it would have as much as it should have. So I went, right, I'm going to start my own thing. How do I do that? I don't have any cash. So how can I get some cash? And then also I wanted to get out of that city law firm environment and get much more commercial. And so going to Hong Kong, it was, I landed there in 97 and it's hard to really remember, but the web was really just kicking off. Business models were being worked out. and all this. So it was a lot of e-commerce was, a, was unknown. I remember going to places and there were like, you know, one or two e-commerce cases. And I'm like, how, how does law apply online? And so it was fantastic because a lot of it was blank sheet of paper. I remember going to one client, they were a marketing agency in Hong Kong. They were going to do the website for the Chinese football team. And they had the deal where they, would, they wanted to own basically all the personal data and be able to market the hell out of it. What is legal? How can we do this? How do we structure this? And it was all blank piece of paper. And I loved that. It was so innovative. And so that really fired me up. So the, the decision to go for my own thing, I went down to Melbourne, Minterellis, and again, fantastic firm. I was on the sort of partnership track and stuff. And I looked at partnership, well, do I stay here and keep doing this? Or is that going to be nourishing to me? And I, again, the, the same result as when I was in London, I thought it's a great job. It's a great life if you want that. But for me, it didn't deliver the meaning. So I'd, in a way, I couldn't not do it, if you know what I mean. But I had to get to a point for me where everyone comes with their own baggage of the different opportunities they have in front of them, the different support they have in front of them, the different hurdles, the different benefits. And for me, my journey was I hit about 30 by the time I went, no, I just absolutely have to do this. And I was, there was a point when I was about 25, I had an offer to go and join somebody. And I thought, I'm halfway through my training contract. I should finish my training contract. I've put, you know, and, be, and qualify as a lawyer first. It was always there. It's just where on my journey was I ready to take that plunge? And that was when I was 30 at that point. Yeah. Fantastic. I'm going to change tact a little bit here because I yep. want to get into GDPR a little bit. Yep. NetCloud. Get connected. Cyber safe is our mantra. From tailored, managed security solutions to our next generation cloud platform, NetCloud will drive your organization forward and help it thrive. You can keep up to date with us in all things cybersecurity by following us on Twitter at NetCloud underscore com. We're also on LinkedIn and YouTube. You can find the links to our social media pages and blogs via our website, metcloud.com. If data had a sound, it could be this. The sound of important and sensitive information leaking out of your business. 
MetCloud. Get connected, cyber safe. Anyone I speak to in this world about GDPR, you are the first person I get onto. <laughs> as far as a, a, a guru of a law, uh, this is one that, you know, and quite rightly so, a lot of our peers in our industry see you as that shining light when it comes to uh, knowing all about GDPR and, and the law around it. But thank you for anyone trying to understand it, and especially small yeah. business owners, yeah. GDPR could be a bit of a nightmare. Oh, yeah. So what I'd love for you to tell us, and if you can tell us in a nutshell, what is GDPR and why is it so mainstream these days? And what do we as small business owners have to do to be GDPR compliant? Sure. So you're absolutely right. GDPR is the a monster in the cupboard in the bedroom. You don't want to open the door because there's this monster behind it. And it's one of those things where the less you know about something, the, the more scary it is. And GDPR has a lot of different rules in there. But basically, those rules aren't that different to the rules that were there anyway before GDPR. It's just that very few people paid much attention to them. What GDPR did is it raised the maximum fine from half a million, and that hardly ever happened, to 20 million euros or 4% of global turnover. And so that really made it on the risk register for boards. Beforehand, the likelihood of any enforcement action was very low. Um, the number of data breaches that made the press was still very low back then. And so the risk for boards, for individuals in their roles as well, was quite low. What GDPR did was it lifted that fine, maximum fine limit so high that all of a sudden it was on the board risk registers. And it's like, well, what's our answer on this? And people were like, I've got no idea. Because beforehand, people paid lip service to the data protection law to a large degree, there were very few specialists. And then suddenly, a GDPR made everybody need to think about it. And there just weren't enough specialists to go around. So everyone's been scrambling to catch up. So that's why GDPR is on everyone's uh, risk register. That's why when you raise an investment, the investors ask you about it. When you do vendor due diligence because you're trying to get a good customer or a good partner, they all ask about it. It's the sister to security now in terms of how do you secure my data and actually what do you do about it and what's your GDPR answer. So that's why people are bothered about it. In terms of what it is, it's a set of rules. It's a data protection law and data protection is basically the set of rules you follow to protect people's privacy and other rights and freedoms when you're processing their personal data. So that's what the GDPR does. It sets out a load of rules and regulations to follow when you're processing people's personal data so that no harm comes to them. And that being the case, how does it affect an everyday business? So for instance, you're a small company, you want to contact customers. How is it affecting small businesses now? And what do they have to do to ensure that they are compliant and they're not going to be at risk of being fined? Yeah, yeah. So the way it affects a small business, so, so awareness is massive. So, you know, I, I remember in um, mid-2018 when GDPR came in, one of my friends said, you know, Rob, we're talking about this in the pub. What the hell is going on? And everyone was suddenly interested in what I did as a, as a, as a profession, which was great for me. But it was like, you know, what's, what's going on? So the reason is awareness is massive. If you're in a business where you deal with a lot of consumers, you may well be receiving data subject requests. Um, like, you know, what data do you hold about me? Can you erase all my data? Uh, can you give me a copy of all my data? All this sort of stuff. And that's one of the key ongoing aspects of GDPR if you face consumers. Now, that tends to be binary. You either receive those or you don't. What GDPR also did is if you have a data breach, before GDPR, only telcos and ISPs had to notify it to the regulator. Now, every single organization, if you have a data breach, 
you've only got 72 hours from when you become aware to tell the regulator you've had one. And you might need to tell the individuals as well. And with the way that they all go into the press and the way that it leaks out and the story comes out and people can do, people are complaining to the regulator a lot more than they ever used to. You know, you really have to manage not just your security and the financial loss and the customer loss, but also the press, the sort of a PR aspect is massively huge as well. So how do you, how do you manage those ongoing rights? Well, obviously you've got to secure that personal data. So you need to know where that personal data is and what you do with it. You've got to make sure you can answer those requests. Actually, we share it with these people. or we, we keep it for this long. And then you actually need to know, well, can I share it with these people? Can I keep it for this long? So what GDPR does, what it means for a small business is you start off by going, what personal data do I process? So HR recruiting, finance payroll, marketing emails, marketing webinars, sales cold calls, all these different processes in the business use personal data and you track the life cycle. How do I collect it? What do I do with it? Do I share it with anyone? How do I secure it? How long do I keep it? And what do I do at the end of the day? So that data life cycle, you want to summarize that for each of those processes. And that's what you need to be able to report on under GDPR. And so that all sounds quite hard. What software like um, Keepable and like others, software as a service makes it a lot easier in the same way that Zero, you know, you can do your finances off spreadsheets, but Zero makes it easier. You can do your sales off spreadsheets, but HubSpot makes it easier. So, you know, we're like the sort of zero or HubSpot for for GDPR. So you can still basically, you could do it on a small business might just decide to stay on spreadsheets, a very, very small one. But as soon as they actually start trying to run a program off it and update those, they realize it doesn't really work. And so what we've seen in the last couple of years, they've all started moving to technology. So a small business needs to work out, where's my data? What do I do with it? What are the gaps between what I'm doing, what I should be doing? And then remediating that, being able to report on it. That whole life cycle needs to be mapped out. And then that enables you to do your ongoing ones of, well, do I have the right contracts with processors? How do I handle a breach? Well, if there is a breach, actually, who's been affected? Is the data subject right? Where's that data? How do I deal with it? So that whole privacy governance needs to come in. And if that sounds scary, that's that scary beast behind the door in the bedroom. What we do and what others do is we try and make that as intuitive as possible. And so business is basically trying to catch up. Privacy is where security was about 30, 40 years ago. Now with security, you know that someone rolls up their sleeve, they've got a whole load of different things like firewall, password manager, VPNs, uh, 2FA, all this sort of stuff, uh, access control, and all this blah, 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 data loss protection, all these different tools. And they're not necessarily from the same provider. And you know why you've got them because you're addressing certain security risks. At the moment, privacy, there's too many people who still think, can I just plug something in and forget about it? Everyone's trying to accelerate to catch up with where security is at the moment. So it sounds like don't be afraid of it. Learn the processes. There are tools out there to help you with that. Embrace it and you'll be a better organization anyway. So Cisco do a fantastic data privacy benchmark every year. And the one for 2021 shows that there's a 2x ROI on privacy spend. So you're making money back when you spend on privacy. And also that over two thirds of their respondents had significant benefits in six different areas, including things like reducing your sales cycle. So someone says to you, you know, what's your GDPR answer? If you can just go, here it is, fantastic. Same for investment and this sort of thing. So you can accelerate the rewards. You can also be more efficient on your data. So a lot of IT and security people are actually really happy about GDPR because it's the only law that puts on every single business a security obligation. You've got to have good security when you process personal data. So they're able to deal with these projects that they haven't had budget for before and they've been on the back shelf and they're in the back mind of the IT manager going, I really want to change that. And also because you flesh out stuff, you go, why have we got this duplicate database over there? 
And so you can reduce costs, you can get more efficient, you can see more innovative ways you can use the data. That Cisco benchmark, uh, data privacy benchmark study, is great for setting out all the different benefits of being compliant. That's very interesting. One of the things that I have identified when I've spoken to smaller businesses or business owners is it's almost like a head in the sand thing. Oh, I don't really want to get involved. I'm scared. Um, You know, the BA data breach was something that just smacked everyone in the face when it happened. If I ignore it, it'll go away. But what you're saying is embrace it. You can actually make it to your advantage by using it as a sales tool, in fact, and saying, if you come and work with, you know, work with us or buy our products and so forth, this is what we're going to do with your data and this is how secure it's going to be. So therefore, using a company like mine that has security and GDPR in hand is better for you longer term. Absolutely. And you can look at things like Salesforce do a really good survey on trust and the trust economy. And there are tons of stats out there about things like trust matters so much more now than even a year ago. Uh, Customers won't use a a business if they don't feel confident about their privacy and security, uh, basically how they're going to treat their data. It is a competitive advantage. And actually, competitive advantage is one of those things that Cisco call out. Um, If you have good GDPR, you have a competitive advantage. So, for example, when I was general counsel and I was looking at using an MSP, I would go, you know, is this MSP cyber essentials? Are they 27,001 and all this sort of stuff? And so I would look for signs that, and I would ask them, what about data protection? And none of them had any answer on data protection. This was pre-GDPR. Now, if you're an MSP or you're a bit small, any type of business, and someone says to you, okay, I'm doing, it's between you and two others. How good are you on, on GDPR? Because uh, I'm conscious that we've got a GDPR obligation. All of our suppliers have to have a good GDPR answer. If you're the one of the three that goes, here you go, this is my GDPR answer, and these are my data protection policies, and blah, blah, blah. And they go, well, that's head and shoulders above the others. I'm just going to go with you. Yeah. And that's the same for any business. Yes, any business. So, taking it one step further, I had a interesting interviewee on the podcast last episode called Andrew Grill. He's a, a fellow Antipodean, and he's a futurist and fantastic guy, really smart guy. And he actually said to me that one of the team that drafted the GDPR recommendations and process, he thinks that the current iteration of the GDPR law is now out of date. What does he mean by that? (laughs) And do you think that's true? So, Or is that a huge can of worms? Well, it's an interesting one. It is a huge can of worms, but the TLDR on it is that's Alex Voss. He's a German MEP, and he said it, it needs sort of surgery on it to bring it up to date. And He's, his comments have been strongly rebuffed by, for example, there's another MEP called Sophie Invelt, who's a Dutch MEP. She was also involved in it. And she said, look, is any law perfect? No. But we worked on this for five years, we spoke to hundreds of companies and academics and experts, etc. It's a very general legislation, lots of flexibility for implementation. And I agree with her that basically GDPR isn't out of date. Um, GDPR has been built to be technology neutral. So it doesn't matter whether you're talking about AI or whether you're talking about spreadsheets or whatever. GDPR is by no means perfect. And there's some areas I disagree with, like there's a conflict, no conflict requirement on DPOs, I think is, is awful. Um, there's various different bits that need, need tidying up, but it's, it doesn't need updating for things like AI and blockchain. All my career, over 20 odd years as being a lawyer, you know, in trademarks, in data protection, in, in computer law, whatever it is, 
someone comes with a new thing. This is totally new. I'm doing this. It's got to be different rules. And you go, well, no, actually, there are f- you go back to first principles. Like, you know, I remember having a conversation with someone who was in their 20s. This is going back a little while about when and she was going, well, you know, on Twitter, you can basically say what you want because the normal rules don't apply. And I'm like, well, no, the rules on defamation, what are the rules on defamation there for? They're to prevent harm to and harm to people. So you can't just harm someone by what you say. Does whether you write it on a paper, bit of paper, put it on a website, put it on a post on Twitter, a tweet, does, any, does that matter or does it matter that you're causing harm to someone? And what matters is you're causing harm. So, so the same thing with GDPR, it's like you need to protect people's data. Um, you need to have appropriate measures in place to do so. If you want to do X with it, you need, you need to do Y. So for example, repurposing data, when you collect data, you have to say what the purpose is. So we're collecting your data to deliver your parcel to you and complete our, our contract. The big thing about AI is you go, well, AI, big data, it's all about, well, let's shove all that into a learning database and let's start, well, if it's AI, let's put it into a learning database so it can do X, Y, and Z. Or if it's, if it's big data, it's let's, let's now start working out that actually Robert votes, you know, liberal Democrats or Labour or Tory, whatever it is, um, because of where he lives and what he's ordered in the past or all this sort of stuff people do. Well, that's using it for a different purpose. And it's the same old thing of business going, I want to do this. And you go, well, these are the ground rules you've got to follow. And that's really all. The, so GDPR is not out of date. GDPR is not perfect. It could do with, with, with tweaking and polishing. But I, I disagree very strongly with that guy. And I think a lot of people do. Surely you could look at the whole gambit of laws for anything and they could all be updated or tweaked or whatever as technology moves forward or as society moves forward that's a whole different podcast and a whole yeah. different conversation you could say that about all law as opposed to just gdpr but i mean in australia australia is a is a common law country like the uk and you know in you, you look at case law sometimes it's 200 years old and what the you know the principle stands yeah absolutely agree absolutely agree great that's a really good insight into GDPR and, and certainly <laughs> certainly that statement that uh, it's out of date. I love it. I think that's fantastic. The one thing I like to do at the end of our, our session, Rob, is to, to do a bit of a quick fire three. So yep. if, if you can indulge me, that'd be great. Sure. And, and, and my first question is, what do you wish you knew 20 years ago that you do now? You're only still a young man, obviously, but um, you know, can, you, can you remember? One person said to me once, you're you're in a swimming pool and you're you're you want to go out there but you're holding on to the side with one hand still let go and go swimming as a younger man i would have liked to have said to myself uh just go for it you will find your way you will find your um you will be resilient and you will find your way out there and one of the things that's interesting now is the labor market and the job market and business environment is very very different i mean honestly back in the sort of you know, early nineties. I mean, I remember when they started, you know, when mobile phones came out, you know, I was 27 when I got my first mobile phone and that was still quite a sort of, you know, not everybody had them at that point. I remember when they decided to start up the second mobile carrier in the UK and they were trying to sort of slowly build that market out. So the environment was very different. You didn't have startups and just dot coms and stuff. You just, it just wasn't there. The internet wasn't there. That's right. So, so it was a different environment, but I would definitely have said, look, just, just go for it. Go for it earlier. Have more, have, have back, confidence. Back your own ability. Take both hands. Yeah. Take both hands off the side and swim out there. 
What would you what would you say to anyone like yourself that came to that fork in the road like you did, you know, from Hong Kong to Melbourne, yep. law versus technology, that, that want to go into another industry or another profession? Any tips that you could give someone that's that's currently at that fork in the road? Or yeah, yeah. is there something that, that stayed with you to say, you know what, I'm glad I did that or, or, you know, I'm glad I took that journey because of this? I think one of the th- one of the things is um, the Argentinians have this fantastic saying: um, "You can be drowning in a glass of water." And what that means is you, there's no need for you to be drowning. It's a glass of water. Just jump, just just to get out of it, you know. Um, and so you can very easily be uh, us humans can just be so involved in our own environment that it, it can restrict our thinking in such a way that sometimes you just you can't have a you can't free up your thought unless you get out of that environment and that's particularly scary so i think if people are looking at making that change i think one thing is to try and take a break it could even just be a week's holiday or something but just to totally get out of the environment and clear your mind sometimes you just got to make the jump before you can actually see things more clearly and make a bigger jump what i would say is things are a lot more flexible now when i went into law most of the partners at a law firm had done their training at that law firm. Now, at lawyers move every sort of couple of years or something. And if you moved every couple of years, when I started off in law, you were seen as a really flighty thing that no one would, no one would hire. It's very different now. There's a lot more flexibility. So I would take confidence from that and just think, if you're at that fork, try and, try and remove the, the strictures that are around your mind and get out of that environment and seek help in terms of a coach or whatever, or a therapist, anybody who can provide that key to the outside world to, to break you out to see, to see it more clearly. Love it. I think that's fantastic. As we all know, there's a heap of new SaaS founders out there or business uh, owners that are, that are trying to make their name in the world. What are the fundamentals do you think they need to succeed nowadays? And, you know, apart from a, a big sack full of cash, what are the fundamentals for SaaS founders, business owners that you think are, are the real fundamentals to help them succeed and get their businesses up and running? Oof. So there's, in terms of sort of skill set, you've got to be able to multitask and you've, you've got to be able to triage and you've got to be able to see weaknesses and bring people in to address those you can't be precious about yourself or anything like this and obviously businesses pivot a lot into to sort of small or larger degrees so you can't be too precious about um you got to be you got to be able to self-evaluate and, and keep moving forwards um there's a great book called from from good to great it's like you know how do you, how do companies become great companies and it's all about this sort of continual evaluation that's one thing i think secondly is you know there's agile in software development where you know, everything's all done in an agile way. And you've got to just have that agile mind. But at the same time, you've got to have your North Star. And that's your why are you doing something. So Simon Sinek is a great consultant. He's got this thing, start with the why. So what is it that gives meaning to you? What is it that's going to make you jump out of bed and stay out of bed until three in the morning working on this stuff? Because as a founder, that's what you're going to be doing. And if it's not, if it's something that doesn't feel like it's going to make you do that or want to do that, then don't, don't do that particular thing. And it's, it's such a large question. I hope that's given some sort of an indication of the sort of person and the sort of skills and, and, and approach. I think that was a great answer. Finally, I just want to thank you for your time. You and I can speak for yeah. for hours if we could and, and talk about Australian movies and yes. whatever we did in Melbourne and all the best restaurants. But the overview of GDPR, I think, is going to resonate with a lot of people that listen to the the podcast. And I thank you for sharing that. From a listener point of view, if they're interested in learning more about Keepable or Robert Bohr or 
you know, GDPR and, and, and using a solution like Keepable. How can they review the product? How can they get in contact with you? Fantastic. Thank you very much. So uh, Keepable.com, so K-W-E-P-A-B-L.com, Keepable.com is there's a, that's our website. You can reach us through there. You can email us at hello at keepable.com. And um, in terms of the GDPR, the UK Information Commissioner's Office has a great set of guidelines on it to sort of gen up on a few things. Um, we, we do free trials and all this sort of thing so people can try it out. Uh, just get in touch and we help. And also we have, we don't do the advisory. It was a strategic decision. Um, so we actually work with lots of different consultants and MSPs and lawyers and all different advisors of all different types. So we, we frequently are able to point customers to people who can help them as well in the whole picture of who you need there because you want people, processes, and technology. And so we can, we can recommend some great consultants, great MSPs, et cetera. Our Simon Sinek start with the why is to joyfully use tech to make people happier by solving their headaches. So love it. the more we can do that to help people, it helps everybody and it helps us too. So just uh, feel free to get in touch. Fantastic. Rob, thanks for your time today and uh, good luck for the rest of the year. Thank you very much. Always a pleasure, Scott. Thanks again. That's another episode of the Vanguard podcast. And I have to say, I always enjoy catching up with Rob for the latest update on GDPR and privacy law. And for me, it's how he manages to explain such a complex and complicated subject to anyone he is speaking to is such a massive skill. Not only is Rob's career path an interesting story, but his perspective on life and life as an entrepreneur, that it isn't always just about the money. It's also about life experiences, allowing yourself to let go of safety sometimes and swim, be agile, but remember to self-evaluate and pivot when needed are the skills that's helped him in his career. Good luck in 2021, Rob, and I wish you all the very best. Thanks again for joining me for another episode of the Vanguard podcast, and remember, Take care, stay safe, and keep on innovating.